Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Are you listening? Damn. And welcome into another episode of the Damn Podcast here on the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network and powered by BeaverBlitz.com. I'm your host for the day, Carter Baines, joined by BeaverBlitz.com beat writer Jake Hedberg. I'm holding things down for Angie while she's down in Arizona taking one of her kids to college. Obviously very important and uh, takes precedent uh, over, uh, over the Damn Podcast, but I was fortunate enough that Angie... Uh, welcome me back to Beaver Blitz uh, to host this week's episode, and I'll be around uh, throughout the season, uh, contributing on the site and and here and there on the podcast as well. But uh, going to be relying a lot on on Jake's expertise here. He's been the man on the ground in Corvallis. Um, but Jake, good to talk to you. Good to see you again. I haven't uh, haven't seen you in, in in a little bit, and we have a lot of catching up to do here over the next probably hour or so. Um, want to get your thoughts on fall camp here in just a minute, but I'll give the listeners a, a little idea of what we're going to cover here as this is game week. This is the first uh, game preview episode of the damn podcast this season. So we're going to start things off with a full recap of fall camp, the biggest storylines, the standouts, um, what needs to be cleaned up before the season starts here on Sunday. We might have a special guest join us in about 15 minutes here. So if you're, you're watching live on YouTube, um, be sure to stick around for that. And if you're listening on audio, um, you might see that in the description uh, if, if they do show up. Uh, San Jose State preview is going to take up a, a good majority of this episode. Uh, obviously, with it being a, a game week, we want to touch on Oregon State's opponent. Uh, we'll throw out some keys to the game, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll answer some of your listener questions as time allows at the end. But Jake, I want to get you in here and uh, touch base with you because this is this is your first season on the beat here at, at Beaver Blitz. And what are you uh, what are you most excited about? What are you looking forward to? Uh, what do you hope to get out of this football season here? Your first uh, on staff at Beaver Blitz. Yeah, I mean, I'm just really super excited to kind of see how this team plays and what is probably their last season uh, playing at this level of competition. I mean, uh, with a quarterback of DJ's caliber, a defense that could be strong, I, f- I feel like this could be the best Oregon State team we've seen in a long time. And it's just really exciting as a student, especially, you know, the buzz on campus is already crazy and the season hasn't even started yet. So super excited about that. I wanted to ask you about that too. Uh, obviously, you know, you're, you being down there in Corvallis and um, having a good gauge of what the atmosphere is like on campus. I, I mean, I know the majority of students won't be there for another couple of weeks, but what's the vibe like? What's the atmosphere like uh, on campus? Because it, it does feel like this is the most highly anticipated Oregon State football season, at least that I can remember. And, you know, that goes back to basically as long as Oregon State has been relevant uh, at the Power Five level. Yeah, there's definitely an excitement, you know, in, in recent years, Oregon State really hasn't performed at a high level. And a lot of these students, they were fans for the, the Gary Anderson years, the two and tens, the one and 11 years. And now we've got a team that could compete for a Pac-12 championship. And there's there's definitely an excitement. There's a buzz, you know, and people are itching f- for that uh, September 9th game. Can't wait for I that. Can- I could feel that too down at the uh, the Research Stadium community preview a couple of weekends ago. Which, by the way, we're going to have to talk about Research Stadium because mm-hmm. you and I have now both seen it firsthand. It's handful of uh, more than a handful of fans have seen it firsthand now too. Um, that place is is going to be rocking uh, come September. What is the season home opener? September ninth, right? Yeah, yeah, season opener is the ninth. So, or the home opener, sorry, is the ninth. Uh, that place is is going to be pretty electric. Um, but Jake, let's let's get things started here with a deep dive into fall camp because practices are are wrapped up now. You know, media is locked out, and so we've seen what we're going to see mm-hmm. on the practice field. Let's let's just go kind of position group by position group here, and I think I'll, I'll order it 
um, maybe in, in, in order of quote unquote importance. And obviously that means starting with the quarterback position. You talked about uh, DJ Uyunglele being there and, and adding a level uh, to this quarterback room that we haven't seen maybe ever at Oregon yeah. State. I just want to start with him and, and how he separated himself throughout camp because with Jonathan Smith naming him the starting quarterback before game week, it's the first time Oregon State's had a starter before week one, uh, you know, named before week one. So how did we get to this point? How did DJ prove that he's worthy of this job so early on in, in camp? Yeah, well, plain and simple, the first scrimmage, DJ won the job that day. I mean, Oregon State as a team scored three touchdowns. DJ led all three of those drives, and all three of those touchdowns were touchdown passes. That was the best we saw him play all camp, and it it was really kind of a teaser almost. It's like if DJ plays to this level of, of potential, then really the sky's the limit. I mean – with the run game as strong as Oregon State has, if if DJ can find that consistency and play to it, he's going to be unstoppable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, you hear the detractors from other parts of the country saying, well, you know, he didn't live up to expectations at Clemson. He had all of the pieces he needed to be successful there. I don't think you can give – I don't think you can discredit – him because of the system he was in. And, and, you know, we've heard him say, we've heard him firsthand say that, you know, Oregon state is a place that's going to utilize his talent better. Uh, you know, his, his upside is a lot higher in the system. He did his homework before he even reached out and, you know, before Oregon state even reached out to him. Um, I, I just feel like, you know, if he has the ability to handpick a system that he thinks is going to help him get to the next level, that's worth a lot. Um, and, and the fact that Oregon state does have, an elite offensive line, which we'll talk about, and, and receivers with uh, immense amounts of speed on the outside. Um, I, I just think it's a, a situation where DJ could thrive. And um, frankly, I, I think the level of competition he's going to face in Pac-12 defenses is, uh, you know, I, I think he's going to have an opportunity to, to, to rack up some stats. Let's talk about the rest of the quarterback uh, group here. The backup competition, Jake, is uh, obviously of of supreme intrigue with Aiden Childs in the mix who, I mean, how can you do anything but rave about his potential yeah. He's uh, just as an athlete, as a thrower, as a runner, what he brings to this offense in the future, where does he stand? And does Ben Goldbranson have uh, the inside track to the, the backup quarterback job because of his experience in the system? Yeah. Well, I mean, the backup quarterback battle was really interesting because it didn't really pick up till the last two or three days of camp. Uh, really, the first three weeks, it was just DJ and Ben, ones and twos, ones and twos. But then that last week, Aiden Childs got, uh, I would say, 80% of the second team reps, and we didn't see Ben Gobranson really at all. And that kind of stood out to me because if DJ does go down, I think I wouldn't be shocked if the coaching staff throws out Childs. I think Aiden is going to play in four games at the minimum. Um they're going to try and redshirt him, I think. But I, I do think if DJ goes down, you're going to see Aiden Childs instead of, instead of, instead of Goldbranson. You know, it's not a knack on Goldbranson. He's shown he can win football games. But Childs just kind of has that, that juice to him. He's just an incredible athlete. He's a cannon for an arm. I mean, he's. I, I honestly think he has the best arm out of the three, the three quarterbacks. And he is a young, he is a young, a younger guy. He's only 17. That may be going against him, but I just feel like his talent is too much. It's one of those interesting conversations that the staff is going to have as the season plays out is, you know, if you need to go to a second guy, like, do you play the upside game with Childs or do you play the proven experience? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that that Goldbranson, uh, you know, we use this line a lot, you know, he won a bunch of games as a starter last year. Um, it'll be interesting to see which way the staff goes. If it comes to that, you know, hopefully DJ stays healthy and lives up to expectations and whatnot. But um, I would be curious to see if, if Aiden Childs gets some run uh, in some various, you know, trick play pra uh, packages or whatnot, just to get him a little bit of playing experience, maybe some garbage time action. Yeah. Uh, let's move to the defensive side because Jake, the position that I think entered fall camp with maybe the most questions is the defensive backfield. 
uh, a defensive back group that loses three starters from last year. You have a, a preseason injury. How is that group shaking out? And, and in particular, two newcomers, Tyrese Ivey and Jermaud McCoy, um, are, are guys that I have been keeping an eye on uh, throughout your reporting this fall and uh, you know, watching them in, in the spring and, and into these scrimmages here in the fall. Do you think they can contribute right away? And does the defensive backfield have a chance to be as good as it was last year, even without some of those veterans? Yeah, I mean, the secondary is still, in my opinion, the biggest question mark. You know, as a group together, they haven't played a ton of, a ton of football. Uh, you know, Oregon State's breaking in two, two new stars at cornerbacks with Jaden Robinson and Tyrese Ivey. Uh, at the safety spot, a little more experience with um, Kitano Dapu, Achille Arnold, and then Ryan Cooper's back at the nickelback spot. I feel like with those first five, those first five guys, they're solid. But beyond that, it's a little questionable. Uh, Jermaud Picoy is a guy that is really impressed. He's he's going to see playing time for sure. He's a great athlete, uh, really good uh, recovery skills. He's a great corner. Uh, the safeties, backup spots. You know, the big question here is is Alton Julian healthy? He he has proven if he's healthy, he is one of the best defenders in the Pac-12. But he hasn't played a football game in 22 months now, 23 months. So he's fully cleared. They're ramping him back up. I feel like if Julian can get back to full health and play to the level he was in 2021, then this Oregon State's secondary could surprise people. Yeah, we've seen Julian play at, at basically an all-conference level already in his career. And I think, you know, it's it's hard to predict him to return to that. But I think any level of production you get from him this year is a win. McCoy is a guy that I find highly intriguing because Oregon State doesn't tend to land, uh, you know, these high impact true freshmen, or at least they haven't in recent years, these high impact true freshmen who step in right away at a position uh, as important as cornerback uh, and, and have them contribute right away. But I mean, by all accounts, it sounds like he has the the capability to do so. He's actually somebody that I wrote uh, about for for twenty four seven sports as our national recruiting team um, identified some true freshmen in the Pac twelve that they think can contribute right away. And um, you know, we we, uh, we we pushed that nationally a little bit that that McCoy might be one of those guys. So if you're interested in reading uh, the recruiting guy's takes on those, go to his player profile at 24 seven sports and at beaverblitz.com. And uh, I believe he's tagged in that. So you can go read um, what the recruiting guys had to say about Jermaud McCoy. We'll move up to the front seven. Now uh, the defensive line and, and the linebackers, Jake, I, I think have a potential, have the opportunity to surprise people. Like you said about the defensive backfield, I, you know, obviously this was a, a group that took a huge step forward in the first year of Trent Bray's tenure at defensive coordinator. Um, but it's a group that that loses a few starters at linebacker, but also gets stronger at defensive line. So how is that balance kind of shaking out to you? And do you think Oregon State will be as strong uh, in run defense as it was last year? Yeah, I mean, if fall camp was really any indication of it, you know, I feel like this front seven really has a chance to be one of the best Oregon State's seen. Uh, I feel like with the pass rush, especially, they've got guys, Sione, Lilohea, James Rawls, Chatfield, they're gonna get they're gonna get to the quarterback, pressure him. The run defense, you know, it's really tough to gauge that during spring ball or excuse me, during fall during fall camp, just because you really don't see them full speed tackle lot. You you see them wrap up, but you really don't see like full speed, full speed. So outside of East of Mascarenas, there's question marks at that second uh, inside linebacker spot. You know, it sounds like it's going to be Calvin Hart, might be John Miller, one of those two guys who we have, we at Oregon State haven't seen a lot play, um, at least on uh, at, at least at the linebacker spot. Um, I do feel like this front seven has the potential to be really good. You know, it's deep. Oregon State hasn't had a front seven where they're legitimately too deep, especially on the the defensive line in a, a long time. And a guy to watch is Thomas Collins, true freshman. I truly believe he is going to be the most impactful true freshman Oregon State plays. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him end up with five-plus sacks. I like it, a little bold prediction there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Col Collins is somebody who, when Oregon State signed, this is a guy who flew under the radar. He's an international prospect. 
um, but somebody who had the physical tools to contribute right away. So I, I think it's awesome to hear that he's making an impact in camp because um, he was a guy who projected to, you know, potentially contribute right away. And um, it, it sounds like he's on the path to do so. One last position group um, that I want to highlight from fall camp here as we kind of start to transition into to game week stuff is the wide receivers who uh, I think had maybe as many questions as the defensive backfield coming into this, this season, Anthony Gould, Silas Bolden are the sure things there. You know, they're the veterans. They were high impact performers last year, but outside of that, I mean, Oregon state's losing a decent amount of production from last year, working in some young guys, you know, I think we're going to see a true freshman see the field here potentially. Um, who impressed you in fall camp and is there any concern uh, as Oregon state tries to surround DJ with, with high, high impact talent on the outside? Yeah. I mean, proven depth here is a question mark, you know, outside of golden Bolden, out of your out of your receivers on the roster, I think you only have 13 catches out of division one level. And none of those are from Josiah Irish. Who's going to be that third starter. But outside of that, you it's going to be a lot of new faces. You know, Jimmy Valson's a guy that really impressed. He's a bigger body guy, 6'2", 6'3", uh, great hands. And then the pair of walk-ons, Jeremiah Noga and Trent Walker, they both flashed. They're I, I think they're both going to see time. Trent Walker in particular had a fantastic camp. Really excited about what those walk-ons are going to do. You know, uh, I feel more comfortable about this receiver room. I'm not sure whether that's just due to, you know, having DJ at quarterback kind of adds that extra element to the passing game that'll maybe allow Oregon State to push the ball downfield some more. But the speed they've got and the size between Jimmy Valson, Jemai East, and Jeremiah Noga, I feel like this receiver room isn't as concerning as it was hit out to be at the start of camp. Size is certainly something that Oregon State has not had a whole lot of at wide receiver, uh, you know, relying on those those smaller and, and faster guys. Um, so it could be a difference maker there with with some of those guys you mentioned. Jeremiah Noga is particularly interesting to me uh, as a former walk on who um, I, I don't know if we've confirmed he's on scholarship now. I'm he's saying not. in the YouTube chat that, that he oh, might be maybe. Um, I don't know. It came to Oregon State as a walk-on regardless. Wouldn't be the first to earn a scholarship if he did, but but made a few plays in uh, some of those blowouts last year, you know, when some of the, the depth guys were coming on and um, getting opportunities. He caught a few passes and, and made, I remember, at least one very impressive catch. Yeah, great catch against Arizona State. Yeah, sounds right. Um, Jake, too, with the, the wide receivers and their connection with DJ – one thing in the spring from what I saw was that, you know, they were still working on their timing. You saw some overthrows. There are a few questions that kind of made you scratch your head. Do you see many of those in, in the fall or did it seem like over the summer months, they, they kind of honed things in and, and the accuracy was less of a concern? Yeah. I mean, timing was much better. Uh, there was struggles uh, during spring, but I, I do feel like that's attributed to, you know, DJ coming over from Clemson, not hitting on campus till January, February, and he's only got a month or two to, you know, gel. Whereas having the all summer, it's three months of just throwing, throwing to your, you know, you, you got your guys like Gould and Bowden, you're throwing to them every day. And it, it really does gel, you know, especially as a former receiver, like timing really is key. And seeing that kind of, the growth has been impressive and it, it's a really good sign. All right. On the audio side of things, we're going to take a quick break. Stick with us here on YouTube as we move into uh, the San Jose state preview here on the damn podcast. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. All right, week one, Jake, we finally made it. This offseason full of conference realignment, 
uh, coaches going back and forth on you know tampering claims and NIL and the transfer portal explosion, Deion Sanders doing Deion Sanders things. I mean, this literally a whirlwind offseason, Jake. I, I, it was it's just impossible to keep up with everything. And now we finally get to talk about football, which at a place like Oregon State, I mean, this is much needed. Just how excited are you from that perspective that, I mean, we're done with talking season. Like we actually get to play football now. Yeah. I mean, it has definitely been a very long and uh, interesting to say the least a uh, couple of months. I'm just really excited to, you know, put that on hold as much as we can and just turn all of our focus on the, you know, actual football. And, you know, it's the best 13 weeks of the year. So I can't wait to get it going. Absolutely. Uh, let's dive into this San Jose State preview with a, a discussion on the Spartans playing in week zero against USC. So uh, you had this this very small slate of week zero games that, that college football holds every year. Uh, these were uh, these were all last Saturday games. So there, there's a few games coming up in the midweek. Uh, this week, those are all part of week one, but the week zero games um, that that add another buy to certain team schedules. And, you know, there's all of these, it's a, it's a very weird thing. And, and picking the teams that get to play in week zero is, is odd, but San Jose state was one of those few teams and they played a PAC 12 opponent, a high level PAC 12 opponent at that at USC. I, I, I keep going back and forth on who this benefits more because <laughs> on one hand, San Jose state, you know, has an opportunity to, you know, to shake off the rust, to work out some kinks in their, in their scheme and whatnot. But then on the flip side, Oregon state has a week of film on their opponent that San Jose state doesn't have. So, I mean, does one team have an advantage here from this? Cause uh, there's also the element of San Jose state got I mean, blasted by, by USC didn't really stand a chance in the second half of that game. So like what, what's the morale element uh, how do you see this playing into the favor of one or two or neither of these sides here? Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like it is very tough to narrow it down to which team gets more of an advantage, you know, being able to go out there and play a game. I mean, there's nothing like that. You know, they've got that advantage whereas they've played a game. They've kind of gelled that way. Whereas the Beavers haven't played a game in nine months now, but, but on the flip side of that, Oregon State has film on on San Jose State that they wouldn't have had. You know, they wouldn't have seen guys like uh, Nick Nash, at receiver, or Conley, their transfer back. Whereas San Jose State, they have zero film of DJ in the Oregon State offense. That's where I think it's going to be more beneficial for Oregon State is because they're going to be able to – Is I mean, as a coach at San Jose State, you, you really have no clue what elements DJ is going to bring to the – the Oregon State playbook, whether they're whether they're you know like running the ball more, play action pass. So I feel like that is a big advantage for Oregon State to have. An interesting wrinkle uh, to be sure, and one that you know Oregon State has had a, a few times in the past. It, it's played in weeks here, but not mm-hmm. not particularly recently. Um, so, so you don't have any like concrete evidence of how this might impact them and. You know who knows? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't have an impact at all. Maybe things even out. I don't know. But um, it, it is a consideration because it's one of those quirks uh, in in the college football schedule. You mentioned the San Jose State coaches, and this is another big storyline yeah. coming into this game. I don't think it means a whole lot because none of these guys coached at Oregon State super recently. Uh, but San Jose State has a ton of Oregon State's former assistant coaches on its staff. It starts at the top with head coach Brent Brennan, who, uh, you know, was wide receivers coach at Oregon State for a few years. Derek Odom coached the secondary. Kevin McGiven, Jose Amalu, uh, and then former Oregon State quarterback Lyle Moivau. So a, a lot of names that Oregon State fans are familiar with, um, a, a lot of names that have recent experience at Oregon State, um, but obviously under different coaching staffs. This doesn't impact the game a whole lot does it jake or, or or do you think their familiarity with oregon state gives them some sort of advantage i it, it's hard to tell yeah i mean i really don't think so you know brent brennan hasn't coached oregon state since i want to say 2016 you know same yeah. with mcgiven 
Odom, Semalu, none of those guys have really been here a while. Uh, I, I don't think it's cool that there's all these former, you know, connections. Uh, I don't know. I know Angie still texts with Brent with Brent Pennon's wife and Joe's wife. Um, I, I don't really see it affecting the game in any aspect, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. It's more of just, a, I guess, maybe an added level of respect between the programs. Mm-hmm. But um, as you know, Jonathan Smith starts his press conference every week saying how much he has how much respect he has for every program anyway. So um, not, not a whole, a whole lot of difference there. Uh, moving to the player side of things for San Jose state. This is uh, this is the benefit of week zero for us is it gives mm-hmm. us a bunch of stuff we can talk about here. Cause we have actual numbers uh, from their, from their week zero performance. And by a lot of measures, it was actually pretty solid for San Jose State, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that's where we'll focus the most here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and starting with quarterback Siobhan Cordero, who Oregon State has seen before. This is a guy who played at Hawaii for uh, three or four years to begin his career, moved over to San Jose State. And now he's in his sixth year as a, a veteran guy leading this offense. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a couple of numbers your way here, Jake. So, Cordero completed 55% of his passes for 198 yards, three touchdowns, and no interceptions against USC. Uh, from a passing perspective, we'll get into his his rushing ability here in a second, but from a passing perspective, uh, I, I know you watched the game, uh, mm-hmm. or, or at least you were tweeting about it, so uh, <laughs> I, I know you were tuned in at least a, a little bit, but um, what do you see from Cordero as a passer, and do you think – he can cause any problems for Oregon State secondary. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty impressed. I mean, with his whole offensive line situation there, he didn't have a ton of time, and he still was serviceable. I mean, throwing for almost 200 yards and three touchdowns—that's a solid effort. I mean, I'd take that. I'd take that any day of the week. Uh, a key aspect for me was no turnovers. You know, like you said, he's a six-year guy. He's played a lot of football. He's going to be a guy that takes care of the takes care of it. You know, he's not going to give Oregon State any easy ones, for sure. Yeah, completely agree. There, it's uh, that veteran presence is is worth so much at the the quarterback position, and I think you see it with with that ball control aspect, particularly against a USC defense that was, I mean, pretty prolific at turning teams over for as bad as they were in a lot of defensive areas. I mean, they forced a lot of turnovers last year. Um, from a rushing perspective, I think Jake, this is maybe an element of Cordero's game that scares Oregon state fans a little bit, just because of Oregon state's history against mobile quarterbacks. I mean, Cordero's a true dual threat guy. He ran 10 times for 52 yards, ripped off a 28 yard run against USC. Um, from the perspective of someone who has seen Oregon state practice over the last few weeks, how much did you see Oregon state's quarterbacks run one and two? Did it cause any problems for the Oregon state defense? Yeah, I mean, we really didn't see them run a whole lot. And even if they do run, you never touch the quarterback. So we didn't really see guys wrap up. Uh, Childs, Childs can scoot. So Childs mm-hmm. would definitely pull it down a few times. Um, but that was, again, most against the second, third team guys. Whereas the first team defense, you know, DJ was more getting in touch with the passing game rather than, you know, trying to add that different element uh, running the ball. But I, I feel like this is a good first test. You know, like you said, Oregon State has struggled against passing or against mobile guys in past years, and Cordero can run. I mean, running for five yards a carry against a top ten team is very impressive. Um, and I mean, Oregon State, you saw it last year. They've never had trouble applying applying pressure. It's finishing. So it'll be very interesting to see how their outside backers, defensive ends, wrap up, get the quarterback to the ground. That's a huge key is wrapping up on on uh, Chevin, Chevin Cordero and just bringing him down for a sec. And I think playing against a mobile quarterback in week one could potentially be more challenging given that you haven't done a whole lot of live tackling in practice. I mean, it's something that Jonathan Smith said uh, towards the end of camp, you know, it's that battle you have with yourself of, well, you want to tackle enough so that you're prepared, but you don't want to tackle too much to the point where you're putting guys at risk of injury and, and overworking guys. 
Um, so it, like you said, I, I think it's a good test, um, but one that could be a little scary for the defense at times because you don't have that experience uh, going against a live opponent, particularly a quarterback who you're not allowed to hit in camp anyway. Um, so it's it's a wrinkle that um, that I'm sure Trent Bray is scheming against pretty aggressively. Uh, speaking of the running game here for San Jose State, uh, Conley, the uh, running back Quali Conley had six carries for 108 yards. Uh, so obviously very efficient there in the running game. And then Kyrie Robinson had nine carries uh, for 34 yards. So that's, I mean, that's still four or five yards per carry there um, for Kyrie Robinson uh, against a USC defense that we heard was improved and didn't look the least bit improved. <laughs> no, um, no. <laughs> I, I mean, do you think that says more about USC's defense or, or San Jose State's running backs that they were able to move the ball so effectively on a per carry basis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's more of a testament to USC not being improved. You know, yeah. all offseason, that's been the buzz, you know, coming down there is defense, defense, defense. That's the key to them competing for a national title. And everything I saw, at least with the run game, kind of, like if if a Mountain West team's got guys averaging almost twenty yards a carry, then imagine what a Damian a Damian Martinez is a Jaquindon Jackson, you know, an upper level back. I do think San Jose State their two guys are both experienced. Conley's a senior, uh, I believe. Kyrie Robinson, I know, has been there a while. They're they're gonna try and run the ball early. You know, Robinson didn't have a ton of success but he's their guy. So I, I think they're going to come out and try and run the ball to start the game off. Makes you, uh, makes you wonder what would happen if Oregon state played USC in a PAC 12 title game. Uh, could they, could they <laughs> run for 200 yards? I mean, it's if San Jose state can. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you wonder. Um, so that's the, that's the running game there for San Jose state. I, I don't think these are, you know, entirely pro- prolific backs, um, but they were effective and, you know, obviously Oregon state's run defense was solid last year. Um, it'll be a good litmus test for how things stack up the rest of the way here as Oregon state, uh, gears up to play against some, uh, some top tier running backs in the pac 12, uh, moving out to the wide receiver position. Nick Nash is a guy that you've already brought up. I, he was the standout of the game for San Jose state. This guy had six catches, 89 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, one of the best receiving lines that we will probably see in the early part of the season here, regardless of who's playing. Um, I, I mean, that is the kind of productivity that you expect to see from, um, you know, your your Marvin Harrison Juniors at Ohio State, the three touchdowns. So uh, to do that against a, a Pac-12 opponent, it makes you wonder a little bit against, again, an Oregon State secondary that we've talked about is working some new guys into the mix. Uh, does Nick Nash scare you from an Oregon State defensive perspective? Yeah, I mean, what's super impressive about that, too, is that was Nash's first game at receiver. I mean, mm-hmm. Nash was a guy that played quarterback his first three, four seasons there. Um, and really, I was impressed. You know, that second touchdown grab he had was incredible. The bobbling catch um, was really impressive. Charles Ross, he had a solid game. He had five catches for about 60 yards. But the Spartans didn't have their top two returning receivers from last year. Justin Lockhart, who had around 600 yards, and their starting tight end, Dominic Mazzotti, they were both out. Unclear at the moment if they're available for Sunday's game, but if they are back, that's two guys that are good football players, and they are going impact to the, impact the game. You know, the tight end spot in particular, uh, Sam Olson, their backup tight end, had three drops by my count at least. So if they get a guy like Dominic Mazzotti back, he could uh, be a difference, a difference taker, and it'll be something to watch as the rest of the week plays out. I'm curious too. Uh, in the passing game, one of those touchdowns came on a, a busted coverage where um, you know the receiver, I believe it was Nash on that play. It could have been a, mm-hmm. a, a different one, but um, or I guess it would have to be. Nash because all three touchdowns went to him. So, okay, it was Nash. Um, Took advantage of a busted coverage. This was like a 25, 30, 35 yard touchdown pass um, right at the very end of the second quarter. Curious how much of that was, again, just a product of USC's defense with an error and 
you know, maybe San Jose State drew something up there that that confused them. Um, interested to see how this San Jose State scheme translates to a defense that I guess we could say is more proven in Oregon State's because I, I mean mm-hmm. I don't think USC's defense is, is living up to to any of the hype that that has come out of uh, Los Angeles at least through one game. I mean, obviously it could be a flash in the pan, but um, curious to you know, curious to see how things translate uh, to Oregon State uh, with with the defense that last year was better than USC's. Um, on the defensive side for San Jose State, there's one guy that that stands out to me here, and it's defensive lineman Trey Smith. He had one and a half sacks on Caleb Williams. Um, anything, <laughs> anything you do against Caleb Williams is impressive. But to sack him not once but twice, um, this guy is this guy could be a problem for Oregon State. Uh, nothing else really stands out on on that side of the ball to me. Obviously, they gave up uh, you know, fifty plus points to a, an offense that is one of the best in the country. Uh, but Trey Smith up front, I, I think, could make some noise against Oregon State, considering what he did against Caleb Williams. Yeah, I mean, Trey Smith had a great game. To be able to get an athlete of Caleb Williams' ability down to the ground is impressive, and to do it really more than once is even more impressive. You know, uh, defensive line was a big question mark coming into this year for for, uh, for the Spartans. They lost a lot. I think Trey Smith only had, like, one tackle last year, and now he comes out against a good tackle in uh, – blanking on his name uh, – Jonah Monheim, I think, yeah. uh, and he he had one and a half sacks, you know, and it'll be a, a good test. Thankfully, Oregon State does have two of the best. I've, they do have t- the, the two first-team all-conference offensive tackle guys in Josh Gray and Tali, and Tali Fuaga, but it'll be interesting to see how Smith's speed, how Josh and Tali are able to, you know, take him out of the equation. Yeah, you'd think if there's an offensive line in the Pac-12 that's equipped to handle a, a top-tier Mountain West pass rusher, it's probably going to be Oregon State's. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, who knows? This guy just tore up a, a USC offensive line that I think, by most estimations, is is pretty good. They're supposed to be pretty good, yeah. I, th- I know some uh, preseason publications put them in the top 15 offensive lines in the country. Mm-hmm. And for a Mountain West kid to come in and – really not dominate, but do really well. Very impressive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another name to keep an eye on, on the San Jose state defense, which again was by no means highly impressive. I mean, they gave up tons of yards. They gave up 50 plus points. Like I said, to USC, I mean, Zach branch ran crazy against (laughs) him. Um, But another name to watch is, is Matthew Tago who played at Oregon state was part of this linebacker room for multiple Mm -hmm. years and was somebody that, you know, we were really high on um, came in right away and contributed early in his career. And, you know, had, had some power five offers chose Oregon state and uh, obviously of course transferred out, but um, had two tackles against USC. He's part of that rotation and, uh, it'll be at the very least, it'll be fun to see a, a former Beaver lineup on the other side of the ball. Um, we still have plenty of time here, but I want to touch on a, a few more San Jose State points before we uh, move on to, to damn questions. Uh, I didn't ask you, Jake, before beforehand to, to prepare keys to the game, but <laughs> I wrote down a couple of my own. So we can start with these. And then if you have a couple you want to throw in at the end, we can do that as well. But um, I, I want to start with, I, I think for Oregon State to win this game, which, you know, by most estimations, they they are a heavy favorite uh, against a middle of the road Mountain West team. But if they're going to take control of this game and, you know, show uh, show their dominance, I think it's important to establish an identity, not only on the on the offensive side with your working in a new quarterback and you know, having a running game that you expect to be dominant, but on the defensive side, is this another formidable defensive front that is hard to run against? Is the secondary going to be as prolific in, in turning teams over? I, I think it's important that Oregon State uh, establishes itself in the trenches because that's where the strengths of this team are. So that that looks like running the ball as long as it works. Uh, you know, don't get too cute with it like Oregon State has in the past where, you know, you try to balance <laughs> things out just to balance things out. Um, and then defensively, it's it's stopping the run. So yeah. I, 
I, I think everything's going to start in the trenches this year for Oregon State. And agree. When you're going up against a team that you are more talented than, um, that's where you can see the dominance really come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I, I do feel like Oregon State is going to try and implement their will, you know, running the football, really pushing the pile. Uh, I think you're going to see a heavy dose of Damian Martinez and Deshaun Fenwick to start off the first couple of drives and then kind of have the passing game expand. You know, if they run the ball successfully, I feel like that's going to open the play action passing game where having a quarterback like DJ is going to allow Oregon State to push the ball downfield to guys like Anthony Gould, Silas Bolton, just these big these, you know, down the field, big play threats. I want to highlight this comment from the YouTube chat here from Brian Miller, who says, I want to see how well DJ can run the offense and call the right reads. This is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good point you bring up here because we talk about, you know, establishing the run and whatnot. Uh, the passing game is going to be a major part of this Oregon State offense because they're going to have the ability to do things here through the air that they haven't in years past, obviously you're going to want to take advantage of that. But having a guy like DJ who only has a few months of experience in the system, who has not played in a game yet, you know, what does he bring to the table as far as checking you out of run plays? If he sees something, uh, if he sees an advantage downfield, I mean, you know, does he go through his progression or does he make, you know, these snap judgments that result in some of the errors we saw at Clemson, I think it's a good point and, and something that I don't necessarily know that we'll get an answer to right away, just because I don't think Oregon State's going to unlock a ton of the playbook here against San Jose State. But um, something that I'm curious to see unfold over the course of the season is is just his command of the offense and you know his football IQ, what he brings to the table from that standpoint. Jake, I don't know if um, you got a good read on that in in camp at all, because you know obviously it's it's not really live yeah. a whole lot, but. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely – there wasn't really as many opportunities to kind of check out of the play, but during the scrimmage uh, particularly, we saw that more. You know, knowing the system, the reads, that's where I got like, you know, Ben Branson's got mm-hmm. the advantage. You know, it's his fourth year in the system now, whereas DJ's rolling on eight months, nine months. Um, you know, that's another aspect of this Sunday's game I'm really excited about. Uh we haven't seen him in a, you know, any like really like live, live full speed action. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles that, whether his, you know, the, the moments that comes in where it kind of made you go like, Oh, but if he gets rid of those, he's going to have a great year. at Oregon State. Couldn't agree more. Uh, my other key to the game for Oregon state uh, against San Jose state. Again, this is a, a Sunday game, uh, Labor Day weekend here, week one. It, we've talked ad nauseum about Siobhan Cordero, the problems he can cause through the air and on the ground. But I, I think, you know, anytime you go up against a, a mobile quarterback, we saw this multiple times last year uh, against, you know, Caleb Williams and, and Bo Nix, you have to contain a mobile quarterback mm-hmm. without becoming vulnerable downfield. And I think it, we saw that kind of rear its head for USC a little bit. I mentioned that busted coverage. You know, if if you focus too much on the quarterback run, if, if you've got a guy spying, you know, that takes a guy out of coverage. It, and yeah. if, if you are, you know, if you're you're sending multiple guys to, uh, to force them out of the pocket, you know, that's one less guy that you can have drop back into the second level. I think – that's the that's the part of facing a mobile quarterback to me that is is the most challenging. It's balancing the, the protection up front with your pass defense in the back and, and making sure everything's working in tandem. Um, I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Jack uh, Jake, but I, I just think that's one of the matchup problems that Cordero presents here. Yeah, I mean that was my biggest key was is the outside linebackers keeping Cordero contained because he showed that ability to you know break out make plays scramble the ball I feel like with guys like Andrew Chatfield John McCartan Corey Stover those guys are gonna have to keep you know keep them from breaking the pocket you know and with our defensive line if that interior has the push that they've had through fall camp it's going to be as long as the outside backers can keep them inside the pocket then the those defensive linemen are going to get there no problems. And I feel like with how 
the performance we saw from San Jose State's offensive line, they, you know, Cordillero was getting pressured left and right all game. I feel like this Oregon State defensive line is going to be able to get to the quarterback. They just got to keep him contained. Completely agree with you there. Let's uh, let's transition here from from game prep into damn questions. Uh, it's obviously first week of the season, a, a chance to to ask some questions here for uh, for the readers at Beaver Blitz. We're going to prioritize here the the questions in the lodge. These are the the VIP members at, at Beaver Blitz uh, dropping questions uh, in the message board for us to hit on here uh, and. I mean, these go across the board here. They're not all San Jose State focused. So um, we'll definitely put an emphasis on the the San Jose State ones. Uh, But I want to start with one about conference realignment because, Jake, it's a a topic that I haven't had a chance to to really talk much about at Beaver Blitz because everything's happened since I (laughs) I moved over to to the 24-7 national desk. Beaver Shark one two three at Beaver Bullets asks, "How are you going to celebrate when the Beavs are in the Big Twelve on Monday?" And you know, obviously, it's a little tongue in cheek there, but I guess Jake, where we stand now, where obviously rebuilding the Pac twelve is is a long shot at best. You've got Stanford and Cal in talks with the ACC, which would leave Oregon State and Washington State uh, as the Pac two at that point, like. <laughs> I think there are a couple of avenues here that that are obvious. You have the Mountain West and the American that are both interested in Oregon State. They've both made their pitches. Um, where things stand now, I think that's the most logical path. You know, the Big 12 is not interested in Oregon State. Oregon State is obviously not involved in these conversations with the ACC, and the Big Ten is certainly not taking them. So, I mean, I think we're at a point where Oregon State has to choose its path with a group of five conference. And and Jake, I'm curious what your opinion is on Mountain West versus American. To me, it comes down to you've got the Mountain West for regionality and you've got the American for potentially slightly higher revenue. Yeah. Kind of your read on it. That's mine as well. Uh, You know, I've been seeing Americans going to bring in more money. And in this day and age, that's what you really need to survive. And I know this whole situation is really um, crappy. I mean, yeah. going from having our conference rival be, you know, Oregon, Washington, Washington State, to potentially having our conference rivals be a Washington State, you know, an SMU and a Tulane. It's kind of like, man, what happened? But I do feel like the most likely scenario is a, a merger of sorts with the American athletic where you see Oregon state and Washington state and potentially Cal and Stanford. Cause I mean, those two are really the big wild card right now, but uh, you're going to see Oregon state and Washington state. They're going to be in the same boat regardless. Um, and I'm expecting if I had to make a prediction, obviously I have no clue what's really going on because no one does, but my guess would be you see Oregon state and Washington state in the American conference with you know, the SMUs, UTSAs, East Carolina, South Florida. Which means they'll end up in the Mountain West because everything's counterintuitive in this whole thing, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, everything's about money now in college athletics. And, uh, you know, it's the sad truth. And obviously it hits Oregon State a little bit harder. Um, but if money is truly driving the bus, the American makes a lot of sense because it's going to give you more money than the Mountain West potentially. Uh, you know, obviously we don't have all of the numbers at our disposal here, but um, it's, it's a dog eat dog world now. And you know, I think you got to look out for your best interest financially in a sport that is becoming more and more of an arms race. So um, where I stand on it, I've always been on the pessimistic side just because, you know, I, I, I don't think that there is no scenario in which Oregon state adds value to any of the power five conferences. You know, it's, it's, it just won't financially. Yeah. Um, and, and so I've always tried to temper my expectations about other leagues interests. I, I think the best case scenario for Oregon state is that you move into a G five conference like the mountain West or the American and you dominate because you have greater resources than, you know, 90% of these schools, if not all of them, you have more talent right now. Obviously some of that would, would probably transfer out, but 
I mean, Oregon State would, would go in with a much higher ceiling than a lot of these programs. If you establish yourself as the best group of five team or one of the best group of five teams, who's to say that five or 10 years down the line when all of these media rights deals expire again, who's to say Oregon State's not the first priority mm-hmm. for one of these leagues? And so, you know, I think it's, it's going to hurt in the short term. It's going to suck. You know, tradition's gone. It's going to feel weird. Nobody's going to like it. But in the long term, I do think that there is an avenue to to Oregon State regaining some of its charm as as one of those top tier programs. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a program like Cincinnati, that's essentially what happened to them. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Big East dissolved ten years ago, you know they were left without a home in the rebuilt Big East, which, which later translated to the American Athletic Conference and their success there which was really due to their superior funding, their resources and all that, it led to them getting the invite in that next round. Um, And I do feel like for a program like Oregon State, they're going to have a lot more resources than a lot of the teams at the group of five level, you know, talent-wise, and more of a national brand too as well. And I do feel like that'll help set Oregon State up in – will help set Morgan State up for success in our next round here. Um, I do kind of agree with Chip uh, with Chip Kelly here, who's he's kind of been saying that I bet you in five, six years, all the conferences are based back on, you know, geographic rather than financial. Yeah, the Chip Kelly model uh, involves getting rid of conferences <laughs> altogether, which, you know, I'm all for. I, I, I think yeah. – you know, there's a scenario where you just get rid of conferences and then maybe you split people into divisions. You call them the Pac-12, the Big Ten. You know, <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> we can we can dream that college football will go back to the way it was. It won't. I mean, it's it's changed forever. It will continue to change, um, and and we'll just have to keep adapting to it. But the beauty of us sitting here on Monday, August 28th, is that we have actual football to talk about. So I want to direct the conversation back to San Jose State. Um, and uh, again, I'll consult with some of these questions here in the lodge. I, I pre-screened some of these, but I'm, I'm going to scramble a bit to find um, timely ones. Let's see. Uh, C. Dunlap asks, what were your thoughts on San Jose State and USC after the game? Looked to me like the San Jose State quarterback was legit and that USC's defense was again suspe- uh, suspect, as was their offensive line. I, I think we already touched on this. You know, USC is not entirely relevant to Oregon State this year because there is no regular season matchup. It, it wouldn't come till the Pac-12 title. And I feel like, Jake, if, if Oregon State and USC meet in Vegas in December, like the takeaways that we have from a week zero game against San Jose state are <laughs> not going to be so much. irrelevant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't read too much into it. Obviously I'm, I'm following USC this season and, and, you know, I'm curious how they perform, but from an Oregon state perspective, it, it doesn't move the needle for me. Um, we already touched on the student energy and, and environment. Um, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. From uh, from from Mr. Gray in the lodge again. Would you rather have? Uh, we're going to go back to conference realignment, but uh, how can you not at <laughs> Oregon State right now? Would you rather have the Beavs join a Power Five conference with sporadic success, or dominate in a Group of Five conference, a la Boise State? That's a good question. Yeah. You know, would you rather That's be a mediocre one. Power Five or dominant G Five? And uh, I'll say for me. I mean, the college football playoff model could change here in the next few days when um, when the committee meets and, and when the, the conference commissioner meets, uh, conference commissioners meet, you know, they could just vote to exclude the G5 altogether. But as it stands now, the, uh, what, five, six, the sixth highest ranked conference champions have automatic bids. Yeah, uh, that includes a group of five schools. So, I mean, if mm-hmm. Oregon State runs the table every year, they're going 11-1, 12-0. Um, you're going to be in the college football playoffs. Yeah. So I, I think you take dominance in a group of five league. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in the same, uh, the same spot here. Obviously being in a power five conference will bring in more money, but with that success at the group of five level, I think that is going to parlay you into a power five, uh, a power five spot with, 
you know, more success rather than going three and nine, four and eight in the big 12 or or I guess would just be in the big 12. Mm-hmm. Beavs fanatic one, two, three asks, and, and this is a good one, Jake, that I'm going to, I'm going to push your way because again, you've seen the team uh, up close and personal way more than I have over the last few months. Beavs fanatic one, two, three asks, who's a breakout player on defense that's not projected to start week one, but is starting by the end of the season. Thomas Collins, you know, I'm not sure he'll necessarily start, but he is going to be playing a lot of football. Uh, I think he's going to be the uh, one of the first defensive lineup to come off the bench. You know, Oregon State's got guys like James Rawls established, uh, Sione Lolohe as well. But that third spot, you know, Joe Golden and Isaac Hodgins, they've been battling it out. Golden's probably going to start. But don't be shocked if Collins ends up in that third spot. I mean, this kid is legit. Um he, he gave the first team struggles. He gave the second team struggles. He gave the third team struggles. He's a very strong player. He's 6'1", 285 pounds. He's, a, he's ready to play from really as soon as he stepped, stepped foot on campus. And he was probably my MVP of spring camp – or excuse me, of fall camp. And I'm really excited about him. I think if we were asked this question a few months ago, and we probably were – we probably would have said Kelsey Howard just because I mean, he fit that profile of a guy who looked physically like he was ready to play right away. Um, For anyone who hasn't been following practice reports, which if if they're listening now, I'm sure they have, but um, what's, what's the latest on Kelsey Howard? I mean, how is he fitting into the defense? Mm -hmm. Do you think he can make an impact this year? Is, is he in a red shirt? Cause I mean, this is obviously one of Oregon State's highest-rated recruits in, in recent history, somebody that we project to be a difference maker in the future. What do you think his prospects are like in year one? Yeah, um, I think Kelsey's going to redshirt this year. I'm not sure to see a whole lot of him play. You know, size-wise, he's kind of a tweener right now. He's kind of – he's a little too small to play, like, interior defensive linemen where, like, James Rawls and Golden plays. But he's uh, a little too big to be playing the edge spot that – is at and Takari Hickel as well. Uh, so I think this first year they're going to try and maybe hit him to trim down a bit, kind of lose some of that 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 weight and bring him off the edge in 2024. We'll close here with one more question from the Lodge at BeaverBlitz.com, and this one comes from Beaver Bait. Um, a question that might be more geared toward Angie, but we'll see if uh, if, if we can attack it here. Uh, Beaverbait says, I'm a little curious on how we're navigating the scholarship limit this year by my unofficial tracking. I think we have 88 scholarship players on the roster. Uh, that includes guys who have been reported at one point or another as having a scholarship offer. I'm guessing that there's some sort of simple explanation, but I'd be curious on if you've heard anything. Uh, are late ads like Drake Vickers and Jalen Holmes possibly not on scholarship this term? Uh this is this is way out of my ballpark, so I'll start with you, Jake. Do you do you have any insight here? And if not, we'll uh, we'll pass it on to Angie and, and see if she can contribute. Yeah, I mean everything we haven't heard really. We know there are at least three over. If that uh, Jeremiah Noga scholarship thing is true, that put them at eighty nine. Uh, the one thing that really comes to mind here is I'm assuming some people are maybe taken care of in terms of NIL where they're being taken off scholarship, but due to the amount of money they're making off of NIL, they're more than taken care of. Uh, Holmes and Vickers, as well as Jacob Schuster, who is another transfer, those three are all on scholarship. So that puts them at 88 at the minimum. My other uh, thought is maybe you see some of the special teams guys like Dylan Black and Everett Hayes. I know they were both originally walk-ons put on scholarship. Maybe they're back on walk-on status. Those, Those are the two you know, solutions that really came to my mind, uh, but haven't heard anything concrete. The joys of being a college football coach, right? <laughs> yeah. Telling kids, uh, hey, sorry, hey. like, you know, your scholarship, scholarship. Eh, I don't know if we can do that. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's rough stuff. Coaching burnout is, is, is very real in college football now. Uh, Oregon State football burnout is not, though. Jake, I am I am extremely excited to watch the season. I think Oregon State has legitimate Pac-12 title uh, upside. Mm-hmm. I think this team is going to be very fun to watch. It's going to be spirited. It's playing for a lot. There's a lot on the line this season. 
both on and off the field, obviously, as, as Oregon State uh, continues to rise under Jonathan Smith. Appreciate you, Jake, for jumping on with me. Appreciate Angie for, uh, for bringing me on to host this week. She'll be back uh, to recap Oregon State's game against San Jose State, which, again, is this Sunday on CBS, Oregon State versus San Jose State. The Beavers get the 2023 season started. Jake? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon, my friend. I, uh, yes, I, will, I will be no stranger to Oregon State. I'm, I've already got plans to head down to a couple games. So um, we'll, talk to, we'll talk again soon. And, and Angie will be with you again next week for another episode of the Damn Podcast.